Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all here this morning. What a blessing to worship with all of you. Um, we're going to begin our series this morning, um, which we're entitling Church in the End Times. My task this morning is to introduce the entire series in one sermon. Um, for me, the way my mind works, that's a very significant task. I've tried to whittle it down, and I will try to move as quickly as is beneficial through the material that we have ahead of us. Now, where I would like to begin this morning to introduce um, this series, we're going to be looking at a passage in Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And we're going to be looking at two chapters in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and chapters 3. Now, in Acts, what we have is a description of the very, very newborn Christian church as the Spirit has fallen on the apostles and on the disciples that are gathered in a room, and they go out and they preach, and people believe, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and the church is inaugurated. We have this wonderful description of what that very newborn church looked like. Now, in Revelation, we're somewhere around 90, around 70 years or so, 60 years after that happened in Acts. And Jesus Christ himself, through John the Apostle, is addressing seven specific churches. But in addressing those seven specific churches, he's addressing all the churches. And in my opinion, he's addressing all the churches of all time. It is full of warning, it is full of rebuke, it is full of encouragement, it is full of truth, and we'll be able to get into that. Now, the authors, as I've already mentioned, of, of Revelation is John, and the author of Acts is a man named Luke. He was a physician. He wrote two books, Luke and Acts, and they're very detailed histories of the work of Jesus Christ and the beginning of the church on earth under the rule of Jesus Christ. Now, these two men had a context. Their audience, the ones they were writing to, had a context that they lived in. And the first thing I want us to kind of go over a little bit is what was their context like and how did this message that they were speaking to these people interact with that context? And here's, here's a couple points that I would like us to understand. The people that Luke and John wrote to and the cultures from which Luke and John themselves came, um, they were challenged by this message of the gospel. It was not normal. It was not easy for them to accept. Their audience's underlying beliefs made the message that they were giving them seem strange and hard to understand. And the writer, John, and the writer, Luke, they understood this. The message of the Christian community undermined their audience's value systems, and these writers knew it. I'm going to go a little deeper into this once I get to our context, because I think we can make a fatal assumption. We can say, I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I joined a church, and therefore my values now align with Christian values. That is not true. 
You believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and you joined a church so that you could learn a new set of values. That is why you came to church. You came to learn something different than you've ever experienced before. When you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you began the journey of learning how to follow Jesus Christ. You still are holding on to a whole bunch of stuff that came not from the Bible and not from Jesus Christ, but the way you grew up, the context you grew up in, and just your sin nature and how it tends to value things and how it tends to point you in a certain direction. So with that, let's, let's think about this. Our modern constructs, the way we think about what we think about, are challenged by Luke and John's message. We must understand that the effect of our underlying beliefs on our view of the Christian community, we have to understand the effects, the effects that these things have on how we think about the church. What I've noticed is most people know what they think, but don't actually think about why they think or what it, how they are thinking about what they're thinking about. For instance, if I think something, I may believe that it's automatically true. That's how I think about what I think about. But I may also believe, if I have a very low self-esteem, that what I believe is always suspect. That's how I think about what I think about. But our society points us in a certain direction when it comes to how we think about what we think. And it points us to not only is what I think true, but I need to figure out a way in which to construct my world so that what I think is true. And that's a whole new world. And let me tell you, the gospel and church community, the way the Bible talks about it, comes right up against that, challenges it with a very strong language. So we must entertain the idea that much of the structure of how we assign value may be wrong even though we attend church. I am putting that mildly, so... I can open the door for us to begin to question whether or not we are assigning value properly. Uh, a fairly recent but past uh, theologian, J.I. Packer, says the following, we approach scripture with minds already formed by the mass of accepted opinions and viewpoints with which we have come into contact in both the church and the world it is easy to be unaware that this has happened. It is hard even to begin to realize how profoundly tradition, in this sense, has molded us. So what sense is the tradition he's speaking of here? Is he speaking of tradition outside of us? No. Our traditions, our families, our churches, if we grew up in the church, what spoke to us throughout our lives. These are our traditions, and it is hard for us to even begin to realize how profoundly they're affecting our thinking. How can we know the truth when these things 
are true. So here's some questions. Um, it's really one question. Can you biblically define, biblically, now, biblically define love, purity, the world, the flesh, idolatry, fellowship, prayer, confession, testimony, praise, worship, endurance, suffering, sacrifice, or good works? That is a small microcosm of the words that you must know the definition to to even begin to know if your understanding of what church should be is right or wrong. Because these are the words that the Bible uses to describe to us what the church should be like, what we should be doing in the church. If you don't know the definitions to these words or many of these words, you don't even have a place to start to begin to question your idea of church or to question your ideas of what it should look like. If you have strong opinions and you don't know the definition to most of these words, do away with the opinions and start to take on the ability to study and to learn what these things mean. And yes, you have the brain power to do it. You can do this. I want to make that very clear. We can learn what God is calling his church to be. It's not just for the people with the big brains. This is something we all must engage with and understand and begin to learn. And I hope through this series, because we're only going to be able to scratch the surface, that we are encouraged, that we are strengthened to do just that, to begin to really purposefully think about what it is God is calling us as a body of believers to do, or any body of believers for that matter, or the church universal for that matter. So here we go. I'm going to cover three points. The first two are going to be points. The last one is going to be in conclusion and in preparation for the sermons which are to come. The first point is Christ is Lord of the church. We must begin here to understand the church. I'll leave it there. Church exists, secondly, to make him known. That's it. The whole job of the church on this celestial globe is to make the Lord Jesus Christ known. And then finally, the church makes him known by living in him while in the world. The church makes him known by living in him while in the world. We can describe this as holy living. Do you know why you're holy? Do you know what makes your actions and your abilities to do things holy? The presence of Jesus Christ. That's what makes it holy. Holiness isn't something you do. It's somebody that's close enough to you to begin to sanctify the things you're doing. So Christ, I'm going to dwell on the person of Jesus Christ, specifically in the book of Revelation, because that's where the seven letters to the churches, which I'll get to in a little bit, are at. They're in the book of Revelation. So the context around those letters are many descriptions 
of the person of Jesus Christ in ways that we're really not used to him being described in because we have the Gospels and they describe Jesus here on earth. But this is, as it were, goes into the transfiguration kind of when he goes to glory, when he receives his glorified body, when he receives the glory from the Father as he is seated at the right hand of God with power. This is what's described in Revelation. And I want us to understand this because Revelation is teaching us of the one who is the Lord of the church. And we cannot understand what the church is if we don't know her Lord. So let's begin with Jesus Christ. I have two pictures up there. One on top is definitely very different from the one on the bottom. Now the one on the bottom is an attempt of an artist to try to portray the vision of John. It's an attempt. The one on the top was an attempt of somebody to portray Jesus as they imagined him to be. So some people view Jesus as a gentle teacher. Some view him as a mighty warrior. Some view him in his humanity, some in his deity, some as a priest, some as a king, some as a prophet. So some view him as a gentle teacher. Well, the one on top simply, that really brings that out. It brings a lot of other things out too that are not true about Jesus, but it does bring that out. Some view him as a mighty warrior. The bottom one definitely brings that out. But listen to this. Few know Jesus is Messiah. And I need to define for you what Messiah is. Messiah is, simply put, all that the Old Testament said of the one who would solve the sin problem. Messiah is all that the Old Testament predicted or said of the one who would solve the sin problem. That's what Messiah is. But I want you to focus on all that the Old Testament predicted this one would be. This is Messiah. What is described in the book of Revelation is the Messiah. All. And as we go deeper into the book of Revelation, we will see just how much the book of Revelation refers to the Old Testament about Jesus. Now, let's bring it home. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, so let's do this. When Jesus came to the region of Holland, Michigan, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? I kind of went over a few things that the people say the Son of Man is. But the next thing Jesus said is, who do you say that I am? I didn't put that up there because I wanted to focus on the response and I didn't have room. But here's the thing. We need to ask ourselves, who do we think Jesus is? Who do we think Jesus is? As we go into this series, who do we think Jesus is? And then we need to put that somewhere, and then we need to go into Revelation and say, does my Jesus match Revelation's Jesus? And if it doesn't, I need to get to know Revelation's Jesus better. This is what we have to do. We have to do that. 
Now, the apostle Peter, then just a disciple, still learning the ropes, says the following. Blessed are you, Simon, son, Jesus responded, Simon said, sorry, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. I want you to notice how simple this statement is. You are the Messiah. You are all that the Old Testament said of the one who would solve the sin problem. Even though Peter at this time doesn't realize that's his main job. He thinks it's all that the Old Testament said about the one who would solve the Roman problem. But he's going to learn. And he knows enough to get the commendation of Jesus. Now this is also important. The son of the living God. This is the confession of Peter. Jesus responds to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Judah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. Full stop. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What rock? What rock? You are Messiah, the Son of the living God. The entire reality and work of the church is contained in that confession. We must understand that. If I ended the message today, we must start there if we're going to understand the church. So, in the book of Revelation, the Messiah is revealed as Jesus, and Jesus comforts, and he forgives. He makes demands, and he punishes. He died, yet he lives, is a lion and a lamb, gentle and forceful, embraces and casts out lifts up and tramples, gives and devours, is God and man. That's a few of the contrasting realities that are communicated about the Messiah in the book of Revelation. So let's read a few of these. They're longer readings. We read the one on top this morning. This is the vision that John has of the glorified Jesus Christ. I'll just point out a few things to him. His hair was white as snow. This depicts extraordinary age and wisdom. Okay? His eyes were like fiery flames. This depicts the ability to see through your excuses. To see what's going on in the depth of your heart to know what's real and what's not. That's why he's the faithful witness. His feet were like bronze fired in a furnace. This depicts a hardness. This depicts someone who once he starts moving cannot be stopped. This depicts Someone who can trample things underfoot. That's also true of Jesus. His voice was like cascading water. If you think of the uh, Niagara Falls, that roar. This is the voice of Jesus. His face like the sun. Have you ever tried to look at the sun? Ah, oh, full on. This depicts that he is God. God. His voice is thunder. 
his countenance is light. You cannot escape the reality that this Messiah is God. And he's all God. Then we have this other description here in Revelation 19. Here again, we're reminded that his eyes are like fiery flame. Here is added that many crowns are on his head. He has authority over all the nations. Notice this, though, in verse 13. He wore a robe dripped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. All this should communicate to us is you don't want to be found in the end on the other side of the Messiah. That's what it communicates. It communicates to the church that we should want no one to be on the other side of the Messiah in the end. We should have a holy fear for the souls of people who don't know Jesus. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, but very specifically he is the Lord of the church. But then look at this. There's a do not weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered. We, have a, we see a great white throne and the earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. This is somebody who transcends the realities of universe. He's its creator. And when he says, there's not going to be a hiding place for you, they all say, okay, we'll go. And all that's left is all humanity standing in the presence of Jesus Christ. The one seated on the throne says, though, look, I am making everything new. This he said to me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of living water. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Notice the free offer of salvation. It's free. Whoever wants water can have it. If you want it, you can have it. And if you have it, you'll conquer. And if you conquer, you'll inherit these things. But then he says this, but the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is just a little quick view of who our Lord Jesus Christ is. These things will be unpacked further as we go into our series. But I want us to recognize that one of the things in our thinking that needs to be challenged, our Lord Jesus Christ is not a pussycat. He's not Santa Claus, and he's not anything else that would make him less than extremely, extremely terrifying to anyone who does not know him as Savior. His acceptance is what we have now. His open arms is what we have now. This is the Jesus that we bring to the world. 
but we must warn people of the wrath to come. Jesus says to the Pharisees, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's part of the church's job, to warn people to flee from the wrath to come. And the reason Revelation reveals this wrath in such visceral language is because part of our job is to warn people to flee from the wrath to come. By coming to know and believe that the water of life in Jesus Christ is free. That's our job. That's what we're here for. We're in between. We're headed to a point. We have a job, and it is to do this. More of that later. Now, two pictures of the church are represented in Acts and in Revelation. In the verse 42 of Acts 2, and then in the letter to the seven churches in Revelation, two pictures of the church are revealed. In Acts 2, the church is one church. It's just begun, so they're all in one place. And it is painted in excellence. It is a prototype. It's like God, through his action as the Holy Spirit, showed us the blueprint of what the church was going to be. Then he began to work on it. Because the church isn't just in one generation or two generations or three generations. It's a cloud of witnesses that is building. It is a temple that is being built up. Okay? So in Revelation, one picture is given, made up of seven segments. The picture here is a mixture of good and bad, a war between good and evil that many that are even in the church do not recognize is even going on. I have this picture on the bottom, if you can see there. That's a cathedral somewhere in Russia. They've been constructing that cathedral for over 100 years. They're still not done. Jesus has been constructing his temple, the church, for over 2,000 years, and he's still not done. He's still doing it. He's doing it in little bodies like this all over the world, some bigger, some smaller, but he is building his church. These are the two pictures, but the one in Revelation gives us the picture of a church under construction that's being corrected and helped and built. It is not perfect yet. Construction, trust me, I was a tile guy for 19 years. It's a messy, dirty, very ugly business. But the outcome is really beautiful. So in Acts 2.42, I don't know if you can read that, but the blue one is spirit-driven. The church is spirit-driven. And the church has three specific aspects that are pointed out. Fellowship, breaking bread, doctrine, and prayer. So the spirit driving love and purity in its people is driving fellowship, breaking of bread, doctrine, and prayer. So I want you to notice, it says in Acts 2.42 that they were devoted to those things. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to doctrine. They were devoted, specifically apostles' doctrine, and they were devoted to prayer. Look at what happens. They were praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people, something that would not last. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The result of spirit-filled church is praise towards God and adding to the number. In essence, Christ is made known. 
And as people who are being saved see Christ, they join the number of believers. This is the purpose of the church, according to Jesus Christ. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city situated on a hill that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, notice this word here, let, 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 let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do you see already? There is a word, good works. Do you know what that means? And then he says, I give you a new commandment, love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. What's the point of us loving each other like Jesus? So the world will know what Jesus is like, and that then they will know we are his disciples. Proven by what? Just our love? No, because when the church loves like Jesus, the church has power on earth. It's the only time the church as power on earth. So then quickly, seven churches of Revelation. I put this in this nice thing here. What this is, is a, what's called a chiasm. If you don't know what that means, it looks something like this. This is the order in which the letters in Revelation are written. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Ephesus and Laodicea have things in common. Smyrna and Philadelphia have things in common. Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis have things in common. Here's the things that they have in common. Ephesus and Laodicea are terminal. Smyrna and Philadelphia are well. And the ones in the middle are sick. G.K. Ville says the following. The significance of this pattern in the way that Revelation presents these seven letters is that the Christian church as a whole is perceived as being in poor condition, since not only are the healthy churches in a minority, but the literary pattern points to the, this emphasis because the churches in the worst condition form the literary boundaries. Let's go back. Those orange things, that's literary boundaries. Okay. Four. So they're in the, they're the boundaries. And the letters and the churches with serious problems form the very core of the presentation, those black ones in the middle. So that way that John portrayed that, as God had him portrayed that, emphasizes for whatever reason, we are going to have to go into that deeper, but it emphasizes the poor condition over the wealth. Five of the churches fail to witness Christ well by forsaking love, compromise with sin, impurity, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, and worldliness. I put those with, if you want to look those up, if you want to ask me afterwards, or you could just read all of Revelation 2 and 3, it wouldn't hurt. To maintain their witness, through pure works, maintained the word of Christ in weakness and great suffering, 
did not deny Christ, endured in the way of Christ. Those are the ways they were able to maintain their witness. Finally, the conclusion of the matter. The task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible through faithful Christian living and witness, says J.I. Pachter. If Jesus Christ isn't the central figure in our lives and in our churches, we're only fooling ourselves, says A.W. Tozer. And according to the more older theologian, the whole world is a theater for the display of the divine goodness. Who's the divine goodness? Jesus Christ. It's wisdom, justice, and power. But the church is the orchestra, as it were, the most conspicuous part in all of creation, revealing the goodness, wisdom, justice, and power of God. And I cannot close with any better than what the Apostle Peter gives us in 2 Peter 3, 10, 18. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed since all these things are to be dissolved in this way. It is clear. It is clear. Is it clear? What sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming, but, but based on his promise, we wait for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Therefore, in his dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led away by error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and for all eternity. Let me summarize in way of application. This verse tells us that the work of the church is to exemplify holy conduct and godliness, make every effort to be found without spot and blemish, to be at peace with one another, to be of one on our guard against teaching and thinking that would lead away from those goals and by growing in the grace and knowledge of our Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. That last one is how we do all the other ones. As we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, we will begin to do all of those other things. And with that, I close. This is the call of Christ to his church, to know him, to exemplify him, so that the world might believe in him and be saved from the wrath to come. With that, let's close. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power to us. Thank you for guiding us and instructing us. Help us, Lord, to know the things that we do not know. Help us to understand the things we do not understand. Help us most of all to know our Lord Jesus Christ more and more, that we might more and more resemble him to the world that needs to see him. We thank you, Father, for your grace, your mercy, and your love, and for such a high calling as this, to make known the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory 
with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.